Non-fungible digital token. It's a word few people even heard of five years ago. Now it's the cause of an effort to figure out the best regulatory policy for these blockchain encrypted doodads, like which agency should actually take the lead here. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got more from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation's Vice President Daniel Castro. And you have written that this is kind of a, a morass trying to figure out how to regulate all of these types of instruments. Let's begin at the beginning, though. What exactly is a non-fungible token and why does it have economic importance? Yeah, so NFTs can best be thought of as digital certificates of ownership. They allow you to prove that you own something unique. That unique item could be something that is virtual or it can be something that is physical. Because NFTs use the blockchain like cryptocurrencies, they also allow you to have smart contracts. And those smart contracts enable really interesting types of applications that people have started using with NFTs. So basically, it's like a title to a car, for example, but instead of a piece of parchment, it's a digital item that is on a blockchain encrypted. Exactly. That encrypted piece of ownership can be traded. It can be bought and sold. You can combine it with other items. And that creates a lot of really interesting possibilities, particularly, you know, people that want to sell things quickly. You know, if you wanted to sell a car, you had to physically take a title to one person and, and give it to another. But now if you wanted to use an NFT to trade something, you could have a thousand transactions in a minute and trade it very quickly without ever actually having to take the title somewhere, mail it, because it's all done on the blockchain securely, there's less risk of fraud. So in other words, instead of a burglar getting your title, a hacker can get it. Exactly. That's the risk. <laughs> <laughs> and so there is a policy that you've written about from the Biden administration to regulate these. Why do they need regulation and what are some of the strengths and shortcomings of that policy? And Maybe just give us a brief description of what it actually calls for. Right. Well, as you can imagine, when you can buy and sell things very quickly online, that opens up lots of possibility for fraud. Just like in the physical world, for example, with art, there's a risk that people that want to launder money will use purchases of physical art to transfer large amounts of funds and hide where the sources of transactions are coming from. The same concern exists with NFTs, especially some of these NFTs that are selling for millions of dollars. And so the Biden administration has put out a policy on digital assets. That policy covers a wide range of issues, everything from cryptocurrencies and the potential for creating a, a U.S. digital dollar to also NFTs, which are digital assets as well. And looking at everything from who should regulate them, how they'll be regulated, how to address crime that happens in this space, how to protect consumers, how to encourage innovation, and how to address issues like taxation. Because when you're buying and selling these items, there can be tax implications, and you need to make sure that people are actually paying taxes on them. Sure. So the NFT then can apply to other digital things like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or to a piece of art that somebody created digitally and you can ensure there's only one copy of it, so to speak, they hope, as well as, again, two physical things. But instead of having the paper recordation, you've got the digital recordation, for lack of a better word. Right. Except the NFT will never apply to a cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies are kind of the opposite of NFT because they're fungible. One Bitcoin is the same as another Bitcoin. In contrast with an NFT, every NFT is supposed to be unique. It represents a very specific item. Okay, well, good distinction to make then. And under this policy, then, which federal agency gets a task? And that's part of the problem, right? That's exactly right. The big problem right now is it's not clear what exactly an NFT 
is in terms of existing law. So there are, you know, the Security Exchange Commission regulates securities. Uh, you have the Commodities Future Trading Commission, which regulates commodities. NFTs don't squarely necessarily fall into any of these categories. And there are, of course, many different uses of NFTs. So some might be a security and others might not be a security. And so it really depends on how it's being used. There's also a lot of various types of crime that goes on in this space. Everything from money laundering to, you know, just kind of outright fraud where people are selling NFTs for items that don't exist. People are selling NFTs for art that they don't own. And so there's a lot of consumer fraud and there's questions about how do we protect consumers in this space so that they're not taken advantage of. We're speaking with Daniel Castro. He's vice president at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And maybe there will never be a lead agency. If you look at, say, Medicare fraud, and sometimes the Justice Department puts out really lurid press releases on when they break up a Medicare or Medicaid fraud ring, and you've got elements from the IRS investigative service, you've got elements from the Justice Department, you've got investigative and policing authorities from Health and Human Services. Sometimes there's even more agencies involved. So does there need to be a lead agency? And if there does, who would that be, do you think, best? Because you said it's not necessarily a commodity in the sense of the CTFC. It's also a financial thing, so maybe Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? There's definitely many agencies that will need to be involved. I think it will help to have one lead regulatory agency in some cases, because there still needs to be some rules of the road. For example, various platforms are used to sell, buy and sell these NFTs. When there are restrictions on, for example, you know, export restrictions after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, we sanctioned a lot of people. We want to make sure that Americans aren't buying and selling NFTs with sanctioned individuals. You have to have a regulatory agency that can supervise these types of actions. And I think that will apply in, in a lot of spaces, particularly because as NFTs become more mature, and we are seeing cases that you know extend beyond these NFT art where people are just selling art. We're seeing this used for ticketing to events. We're seeing it used for gaming. We're seeing it used for digital collectibles, like with the NBA. When it becomes more mainstream, you want companies that are investing in this technology to be able to do it and know that they're following the law and have a regulator who they can go to and get their questions answered. They don't want to be doing something illegal. And if you don't have a lead regulatory agency, it's very confusing because you can ask one agency, am I doing things right? And then, you know, six months down the road, another agency is knocking at your door saying, hey, why don't you talk to us? Sure. And of course, this policy is coming from the Biden administration as a regulatory and policy proposal. Where is Congress in all of this? Congress has been on the sidelines. They've had a few hearings on these issues. They've mostly been focused on cryptocurrencies and stablecoin. Uh, and they haven't really looked at NFTs as much, which is unfortunate because, again, consumers are buying and selling these in, in large quantities. The volume continues to rise overall. It's fallen a bit with you know some of the cryptocurrency collapse in the last few months. But you know many of these platforms are still going strong. And so again, you know the question is always, how can we make sure that consumers are not hurt, and that we're also setting rules of the road so that businesses that want to innovate in this space can do it successfully and they don't have to go abroad to do it. It's sort of like there's the possibility of a Wild West land grab fraud type of activity going on here nationally. 
it's very easy to commit fraud in this space. All you have to do is create a website, say you're creating some really interesting game. You never actually have to produce any product. People will invest lots of money and that money is untraceable after it's given to you. And then people run off with it. And, and there's been some investigations in this space, but there's probably a lot more fraud that's going undetected right now. And for that matter, you really can't be assured of the provenance of the digital asset that is being protected by the non-fungible token. You mentioned earlier souvenirs from the National Basketball Association. I mean, if I go to a stadium and there's a representative there and there's a signed jersey that I want to buy, I take that home and, you know, or I might even have it signed by the player. But you have no idea whether it's really an NBA-issued asset or any other organization you trust asset in the digital world. It's definitely buyer beware right now. Buyers can, because it's on the blockchain, check the provenance, you know, to see who actually issued it. But it's very much you're looking at trust signals. You know, do you trust who you're buying this from? And can you trace its origins? Does it come back to a company that you can find the NBA has put on its website? Yes, they have a licensing deal with. But again, as you said, there's a lot of cheating that goes on. And unless buyers are being careful, they can buy something that maybe looks real, but when they start scratching the surface of it, they realize maybe they wasted their money on something that nobody else is going to be interested in. Or maybe the real issue is, can I sell it again and get the heck away from it and let the next guy worry about it? Right. All right. Definitely a role for the government to step up here, though, it sounds like. There is. And again, there's there's so much innovation in this space. I mean, you have to look at why people are also buying these. You know, Creators, for example, one of the things they like is right now, if an artist sells a piece of art, they only get revenue when uh, not for sale. But with NFTs, because of the smart contracts, they can actually get revenue, a, a percentage of the sale every time the item is sold after that. So there's some really interesting applications like that where, you know, people are finding out that they can create new business models. In gaming, it's something similar. Game companies are creating these games where you earn NFTs as you play. And so it creates a reward system where early adopters of the game who encourage others to play it too, the time that they invest in that, they actually get and share in some of the rewards as the game grows. So there's these really interesting business models that, again, are likely going to take off. Some of them are legitimate, but some of them start to look more like Ponzi schemes or other types of scams. Daniel Castro is vice president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to 
President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 
50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it- you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.